The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. This morning is Christianity and history. Now, that's a little bit more difficult. I mean, it's a hard sell to come along and say, well, this morning we were reminded and shown very clearly that we're all ethicists, that we all practice issues of morality, that we have to make ethical decisions every day. It's a little bit more difficult to come alongside and say, well, you know, we're all practicing historians, and we do history every day, and we love the subject uh, of history. But the reality is Christianity is inescapably historical. Our faith is, as much as it is bound up with ethics and morality, it is not just bound up with ethics and morality in some sort of timeless philosophical abstract system. Ethics take place in real life, in time and space, and in history. And so as our lives unfold in this time-space world, that's where we practice ethics. This is where we have the opportunity uh, to bring glory to God by our attitudes and words and behavior. So when we come to the Scriptures, we're not just looking for timeless principles that we can abstract out of God's revelation, as if it doesn't make any difference whether or not Abraham or David really lived and were historical people. It makes all the difference in the world. In fact, the Bible is subject to what has sometimes been called the scandal of historical particularity, which just means that when you come to the Bible, you can't just come to it philosophically, you have to come to it in recognition that it's dealing with historical people and places and events. Now, that shouldn't need to be said, uh, but it does need to be said uh, today. There are a lot of people who want to come to the Bible and say, well, listen, it doesn't matter if uh, the Bible gets the history wrong, or it doesn't matter if the Bible gets the science wrong. It doesn't really matter if David was a real person. It doesn't really matter if some of these events in Scripture really happened because the message of the Bible is really just about love and brotherhood and treating other people nicely and recognizing some sort of purpose which is bigger and better than just us. That's not true at all. It makes all the difference in the world whether or not the Bible records genuine, true history. And it does. In fact, one of the things that I trust we'll see this morning is that far from just recording history, that is besides just the fact that the Bible does tell us things that actually have happened, people who have actually lived, words which were actually spoken, deeds that were actually done, the Bible itself actually gives us the foundation that we need to be able to know anything about the past at all. The Bible doesn't just contain history. The Bible and the Bible alone gives us what we need intellectually to make sense of history, to make sense of what's happening in this world, because the Bible shows us what God is doing, God's purposes, God's plan coming to pass. God declares the end from the beginning. We'll see how necessary all of those things are uh, for us. Uh, today, Joe mentioned actually that one of the things that we need to do is we need to not just understand modern culture, what our contemporaries and colleagues are saying. We need to read old books. You know, it, it saves us from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Uh, and this is actually a real problem for us today. You know, we deal in a culture that has sort of principled obsolescence built into everything, right? Uh, so, when your uh, iPhone, I'm not really technological, so this is probably going to be embarrassing. Uh, so, so, when your iPhone is released, in principle, that technology is supposed to become outdated very soon. Why? Because the iPhone 2 is going to come out, and how do you make all of your money? You make your money by saying it's newer, if it's newer, it's better, it's faster, it's improved. Newer in our society equals better. That's very dangerous, particularly when your culture is adrift in the relativism and with some of the challenges that Joe was talking about this morning. 
newer does not equal better. Uh, newer does not always equal progress. Sometimes it's you're moving further, but you're going in the wrong direction entirely. And so one of the things that we need as believers is we do need to become more conversant with what the men and women of God have thought and believed and taught throughout the history of the church. And it's kind of a shock, actually, for some of us uh, when we first realized that there were generations of believers before us, and they actually knew God. And in many ways, some of them had deeper understanding uh, than we do. The Bible contains history. Now, because of that, the Bible and the Christian worldview has been challenged in accord with lining up with archaeology or historical facts, but also many believers have tried to demonstrate, not just through the Scripture, but they've tried to demonstrate through evidence, through archaeology, through logical argument, that the history in the Bible really does line up with what you can find out in the academy or in the university. There's all sorts of work along these lines for which we should be very thankful. A lot of it's very good. But the Bible also, though, contains events which are, by their very nature, miraculous. That is, the Bible contains events which you can't explain in terms of normal history, normal historical investigation. The Bible talks about things which are very unusual, acts of God which bring glory to His name and reveal His power in special ways. So that when the people observe the event, that's a miracle, there's no explanation besides the direct intervention and act of Almighty God. Well, how do you begin to investigate those things through historical, critical inquiry or analysis? It seems like it's a totally different subject matter uh, entirely. The paradigm of this, though, of course, you're probably familiar with this. I want to present, present just a very quick sketch of this, is the argument that's tried to be made historically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of people uh, who want to come along and say, listen, the Bible, contain, the Bible is true history. The Bible contains miracles, so miracles must be part of our history. They really happened. The largest miracle, the best attested miracle in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do is when we have skeptical friends uh, who say that they don't believe the Scriptures, we want to make a historical argument that where the conclusion is that Jesus Christ really was raised uh, from the dead. Before we do that, though, I think it's very important, I, I agree with Joe entirely about this, that when it comes to understanding our faith, when it comes to defending our faith, uh, philosophy and logic and all those sorts of things are important, but we must never be so foolish as to think that we've advanced past the Word of God. We must never think that our argumentation is going to be more persuasive than God's holy Word, or that our acceptance of God's Word is based on our intelligence or our analysis. Rather, we need to test everything that we think and even what we're trying to prove on the basis of the Word of God. Jesus tells us in Luke 16, beginning uh, verse 19, a parable. And this is very interesting because he, he tells us what we can expect in terms of resurrection or someone coming back from the dead. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they will not listen to the word of God, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We have to understand, before then, beginning to make some sort of historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, That no matter how successful we think we are at doing that, if they won't listen to the Scriptures by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, they will not be convinced. Even if we can convince them, as a matter of historical fact, that Jesus has come back from the dead. So we want to sink that deep into our minds and understand what we're trying to do and also what we're able to do. Now, before getting too far ahead of myself, I want to make this very clear. I'm only presenting the barest outline or sketch of a standard style argument historically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just a sketch. There's lots more that could be said. There are lots of objections and counter-objections and rebuttals and, and on and on and on and on. But I also, though, want to argue after presenting this sketch that just as it is, It's completely insufficient. Just as it is, you can never make a purely historical argument which validates and vindicates every claim of Jesus Christ or the event of the resurrection. So I want to present this sketch. It's good, provided it's put into the context of a Christian worldview. But if this sort of argument is made outside of the context of a Christian worldview, you just can't expect it to accomplish very much uh, at all. It doesn't have the philosophical credentials to do so. Well, how do people go about making an argument for the resurrection? It's as, the cases are as variable as the scholars who put them forth. But there are some commonalities. There are some common denominators in these cases. Uh, There's a scholar named Gary Habermas uh, who has done extensive work in terms of arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what what he wants to do is he wants to start with sort of five neutral principles that historians can use to investigate any event. And then he wants to take these principles and he wants to apply them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot more, and there are some people who work from less, but he, he gives five, sort of easy to remember. That if you're looking for historical uh, validity, if you're looking for a testimony that will strengthen a historical case, the first thing you want is, is you want multiple independent sources, right? And this makes sense. Uh, if you have uh, a car accident that someone witnesses, if you have one witness, well, that's good. If you have five witnesses who all say the same thing, that's better. You know, so multiple sources. But they have to be multiple sources which are independent. You can't just get people in groups discussing what happened and then sort of having a group report. In fact, they've done studies, it's very interesting, uh, where they'll have a, a crowd of people maybe lined up uh, to go into a movie theater or whatnot, and they'll stage uh, a purse snatching or, or some other uh, minor crime. Now, uh, I, I wouldn't have uh, the bravery uh, to stage something like this in a state like Texas, 
you know, where everyone has a gun, uh, but maybe they, they pick states that have different laws, or maybe it's in Canada. And, and they'll stage this purse snatching, and everyone turns, the, the, the woman screams, things happen in a blur, but they get to watch, and, and the person runs off, the thief runs off with the purse. And then people will discuss it, did you see what happened? And researchers have planted people in those lines who will say things like, you know, I can't believe it. Did you see that? You know, it was just such an amazing thing, and and I just, it stuck right in my mind how how red the person's shoes were. The person wasn't wearing red shoes at all, wearing black shoes. And then when you finally get people giving a report of what happened, it's amazing how many people who were given that information will say, yeah, you know, they're about five foot ten, and they're wearing jeans, and they're wearing red shoes. Right? We think we see things on the basis of reports. So it's not just that you get five or ten people, it's that you have multiple independent sources who, who aren't talking together. Uh, that's important. Second one is called enemy attestation, or testimony that supports you from an enemy. An enemy is not likely to say anything which helps you out. So if you get someone in a court of law who testifies on your behalf, and it's well known that you don't like them, they don't like you, they're not going to benefit one bit from saying anything to help you, then that supports your case a lot better than if your best friend testifies on your behalf, or your spouse testifies on your behalf. So if an enemy reports something which helps you, then that supports the historical case. Third one is embarrassing admissions. Embarrassing admissions. You know, if, if I'm uh, in an alley and I see a car accident and the police come by and I come forward as a witness and I say, listen, uh, this is what happened. I, I saw it. I had a great vantage point. I was standing right over there in the corner of that alley. And the police officer says, oh, uh, what were you doing in the alley? Well, I was having a cigar with Joe. You know, <laughs> That's embarrassing, you know, because there are fine places like beaches where you can do that, and it's great. In an alley, not so much, you know, so if I'm going to say something which is embarrassing to me, I'm not going to make up a story which includes those sorts of elements. I'm going to drop them out, right? If I'm going to invent a story, I'm not going to invent things or details that make me look bad. Uh, another one, then, eyewitness testimony. Of course, this is very common, not hearsay. And so the fourth is eyewitness, and the fifth is early testimony. Uh, a report which comes relatively close to the event is gen- generally considered more trustworthy which wa- than one that comes years or decades or centuries later. Okay? So, so Gary Habermas wants to take these five principles and then apply them to the resurrection, make a case for the resurrection that utilize these five principles. And what do you find? Well, do you have for the resurrection multiple independent sources? Four Gospels. You have Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, who is already in very, very early writing, very close uh, to the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul already saying in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received I passed on to you, meaning this is already a tradition that Paul has heard heard about right from the very beginning then. Not only early, but the witness of the church is that Jesus has died and he has been raised again, all according to the scripture. That's a very important phrase in 1 Corinthians 15. According to the scripture. According to the scripture. So you have Paul saying, this is what everyone's saying. Uh, You have the gospel writers who are arguing for the resurrection, the preaching in the book of Acts, Multiple sources saying Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you have eyewitness testimony? Yes, you do. Do you have early testimony? Yes, yes, you do. Uh, Do you have enemy attestation? Do you have enemies saying things which support the case for the resurrection? Yes, you do. In, In what sense? Well, the one which is probably used the most is remember in the Gospel of Matthew. They've sealed the tomb. There's a guard at the tomb. Jesus is raised from the dead, and then the leaders need a story for how they're going to explain what's happened. So they say, okay, this is the story. 
the disciples came while we were asleep and stole the body. That's what we're going to tell people, okay? Now, at one level, this is just not a good story, okay? Actually, there's multiple problems with this. Think of it like this. For one, the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was death. So these were relatively motivated people to not fall asleep, okay? There's a whole team of them, and so all of them fall asleep. Not they took shifts. Everyone fell asleep. Now remember, there's a guard by the sealed tomb. Remember how they sealed tombs? They found these archaeologically, because the Bible really does contain genuine history. Uh, the tombs that were in these areas, burrowed and buried into caves, would have uh, grooves in the ground, tracks, and the stones would be sort of big disc shape or wheel shaped heavy stones, which is why the women were concerned. Who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to anoint the body of Jesus? It, the, the stones were sort of set up on a bit of a slope so that it was easy to roll the stone down and seal or close up the grave, but it was awfully difficult. It took a lot of strength to roll it back up, okay? So this tomb is sealed, and we are to expect that these people who will die if they fall asleep on guard duty, not only all fall asleep, but they all sleep so soundly that when a team of disciples come and push this huge stone back up the hill, it makes no noise whatsoever, and they remain asleep. Now, that's one of the difficulties. The other thing is that if you were in a court of law, how would you like to be in this situation? I, I have been robbed, actually. Uh, I wasn't home. Uh, I was away, and someone broke into my house and, and stole my things. Or actually, they stole my thing. I didn't have much, many possessions uh, then. And it was actually highly embarrassing because they left my TV. It, it, of all the things that you think someone would want to steal, a TV would be high on that list. But it was, back, it was actually had the, the knobs that you had to adjust. And so I, I figured that the thief just didn't know how to work it. You know? <laughs> He thought it was a new technology that he wasn't familiar with. Uh, so he didn't, they didn't take very many things. But can you imagine if, if I was home and, and I was asleep? And we'll say uh, my friend uh, Greg is here uh, this morning. And I, and I say to the police, and I'm on, I, I, listen, I, I know who did it. It's Greg Allen. Well, we're in court, and I'm on the witness stand. And, and the, Greg's lawyer says, so, you were home? Yes, I was home. Where were you? I was in my bedroom. What were you doing? Oh, well, I was sleeping. You were sleeping when your house was robbed. Yes, that's right. The noise didn't wake you up. No, it didn't. Greg is very crafty. He's a cat burglar. He sneaks around. Well, so you didn't wake up at any time? No. How do you know who it was who stole your things if you were asleep? Uh, um, well, unless the disciples carved their name on the wall of the tomb, you know, and said, we were here, or like, how do you know? You're asleep. How do you know who stole the body? I mean, the, the, the whole thing is ridiculous. But what it does do, though, is it has a very important admission from an enemy, and that admission is the tomb is empty. Part of your historical case, then, is that the enemies of Jesus are saying, yeah, his body's not in the tomb anymore. What's their excuse? Well, their excuse is awful. It's as thin as can be. But you take that data and you say, even the enemies of Jesus are conceding his body is no longer there in that tomb. Do you have embarrassing admissions? Absolutely. Uh, the disciples come off as absolute faithless cowards. These are the leaders and pillars of the early church. These are the people who are supposed to have the integrity to generate this whole Christian movement and, and build up the church. Where are they? They've run away. When they first hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead, what do they do? They doubt. You're not going to invent those sorts of details. And what's worse in the culture is that your first witnesses are women. It's so hard for us to believe in our culture. But in Jesus' day, uh, Jewish culture, Greco-Roman world, women 
were considered so unreliable as witnesses that their testimony was not considered valid in legal courts. It wouldn't even enter into anyone's mind in that culture to have your first witnesses be people who couldn't be witnesses, whose testimony was considered so irrelevant and, and so uh, sort of unacceptable that no matter what they said, you wouldn't listen. Why would you have your best men look terrible and people who couldn't even be witnesses be your first witnesses? It's highly embarrassing. Those are the sorts of things you're not going to say unless it's true, unless it actually happened. So these are the sorts of arguments that tend to be made trying to argue for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the case is largely trade on, on three facts. That is the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus Christ to his disciples. I mean, the empty tomb by itself doesn't prove a resurrection. But the tomb is empty. You do need to account for that somehow. But also then Jesus appears to his disciples. I mean, and this is sort of a psychological argument which is often made. The disciples are cowardly. They've run away. What accounts for the change in them? So that just scant weeks later, they're standing up in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was condemned, in front of the very people who crucified him, and far from running away, they're saying, you, with wicked hands, put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. You are accountable to him. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what's in, in, in sort of that day of Pentecost sermon, what's the great proof of the resurrection? The great proof of the resurrection is that the Holy Spirit has been poured down. Uh, the new covenant is here. Uh, there's divine power. How do we know? How is the Spirit here? The Spirit's only here because Jesus is in glory. The Spirit wouldn't be here if Jesus was still dead in the tomb. So the disciples are boldly preaching. There's been, there's been this huge change. Well, what can account for it? Well, they sincerely believe Jesus was raised from the dead, do you see? Which is something they wouldn't believe if they had stolen the body, right? They, they wouldn't have all been willing to suffer and die for their faith if they knew their faith was a lie. Right? So, all of these sorts of considerations are taken into account. And then, at some level, too, you also do have to account for the rise of the church, N.T. Wright makes, in some ways, I think it's a, you know, a pretty good point here. You know, he, he says that when you look at the growth of the early church, in a world where the Jews believed there would be one resurrection at the end of time, and where resurrection on Greek philosophical principles was utter folly, here you have these people preaching one person in time and space has been resurrected as the first fruits of that great resurrection, and, and the thing just takes off, and the church grows. Well, how do you account for that? Unless it's true. Unless it's happened. Again, this is sort of a psychological, sociological, historical style of argumentation. So you have to account for those sorts of things. What accounts for the change in Paul? Zealous persecutor of the church, besides being met by the risen Lord. What accounts for the change in James, the Lord's half-brother, besides an appearance of the risen Lord, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15? Actually, William Lane Craig uh, sort of makes a wry comment. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And we know from John's gospel that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him early on. And William Lane Craig sort of asks dryly, what would it take to convince you that your brother was God? What would it take to convince you that your brother was God? An event like the resurrection may be the sort of thing that we would need. Now, there are all sorts of alternative theories which are, which are pronounced uh, or which are set forth in objection to this. Things like, well, the disciples really believed Jesus appeared to them, but it was hallucinations, and there's all sorts of arguments against that. But there are these two facts that the objections keep running aground against, and that is, the empty tomb and the appearances. You know, the hallucination argument, at best, only tries to account for the appearances. But what does it do with the tomb, right? Uh, some of the other arguments, like the, the, that the disciples stole the body, that tries to account for the empty tomb, but what do you do with them then being convinced Jesus really was alive again? So you have to account for both wings of this data, and most of the objections fail 
because they can only even try to answer one of them. Now, having said that, that's just, again, the merest sketch of how these things are normally pronounced. Uh, one of the issues with it, though, perhaps one of the greatest shortcomings in it, is, comes from Gary Habermas himself. Well, he doesn't see this as a liability or a weakness. He says that when we're doing historical inquiry and investigation, we're almost never going to be able to be absolutely sure that something really happened in time and space and history. He says, the, what we're aiming for isn't certainty, it's probability. So all we're trying to do as we apply these principles is we're just trying to show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ probably happened. It's more probable than not. Or in a weaker version, there are all kinds of people who want to come alongside and say, well, well listen, even if the resurrection isn't probable, it's at least not impossible. That is, it might be statistically improbable, but you can't prove to me that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Here are some arguments, and it's at least a possibility. But to be honest, when, when I come to the Scripture, our great hope doesn't seem to be that we can, pro we can believe that Jesus probably was raised from the dead. Our, our, our great hope isn't that Statistically, it's more likely than not that Jesus really was raised in history. No, the Scripture comes along, and, and, and the disciples come along, and the apostles come along, and they say, you can know for sure that Jesus was raised from the dead. God has made this very clear. This is the clearest fact of history. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, I want to argue at this point, having just sketched out that case for the resurrection, which again, it contains some very valuable things provided it's put in the right worldview context. I want to present some things which we'll pick up later this afternoon. Uh, so if you don't fully grasp all these things right now, uh, that's fine. We're just going to move through some principles quickly, some of which will be addressed uh, later. But there are two ways then of attacking this historical case. One is with the nature of the facts themselves. But the other is on the philosophical basis on which this case is made in the first place. And this is where the tremendous weakness in the case comes in. Historians use other principles besides the five that Habermas gives. One of which is most commonly used to argue against the resurrection and all miracles. It's called the principle of analogy. The principle of analogy. This can be made very technical uh, in the literature, but you've basically heard this. You can understand it if you just understand it like this. Someone says, you know what? The past was probably a lot like today, right? Natural laws, things are basically the same as they were, and so if I'm told of something which happened in the past, it has to at least be analogous, or there must be an analogy to my own personal experience before I believe it. In other words, when it comes to miracles, you know what? I haven't seen any miracles lately. I haven't seen any miracles in my life. I haven't, I've heard reports of miracles which turn out to be fraudulent or which I just don't believe. And, and, and so I'm just skeptical about miracles. You know, if God was doing miracles in the Bible, if God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, well, then how about a resurrection tomorrow? You know, uh, then I'll believe. Or, or how about you know, God speaks from heaven? Or, or how about God does a miracle now? Well, I just haven't seen any miracles. Our whole experience is against miracles. And so on the principle of analogy, no matter what the case or argument or evidence is for a miracle happening in the past, because it just doesn't have any analogy with my experience today, I, I'm not going to believe it. The principle of analogy. Uh, this is off. This is actually argued at tremendous length. Uh, in, in the literature. It, it, it's kind of like um, David Hume's arguments a little bit. Uh, uniformity of nature. Uniformity of natural law. Uh, David Hume comes along in the 1700s as a Scottish philosopher, and, and he says, listen, in all of our experience, miracles don't happen. 
And, and, and so the whole consistent uniform testimony of experience is against the miraculous. It's against the supernatural. Things just happen in accord with natural law. Now, what we'll see later this afternoon is that Hume is mind-numbingly self-contradictory uh, in, in his philosophy. Because one of the things that he's most known for in the history of Western thought is for undercutting every reason to believe in the uniformity of nature. But he wants to use this uniformity of nature and experience and testimony against the resurrection. It's, it's really uh, an heir of the first order of magnitude. It's, it's an incredible thing. It's absolutely it's baffling, actually. Now, I don't want to digress too far, but I've been showing in the first session, you're allowed to digress a little bit, you know, provided you come back in time. What Hume does is, is he shows us this principle which runs all through all through philosophy, all, all through all non-Christian thought, and it, it, it's, it's a dialectic or it's a tension. It, it, it's, it oscillates between being rational and being irrational. Sometimes called the rationality-irrationality tension. And, and when you look at all non-Christian thought, it, it goes this way. People want to be so rational, and they use their rationality to prove irrational things. Or, in their, they, or they're irrational in their application and use of rational principles. So for David Hume, part of his philosophy is destroying all cause and effect relationships. You can never know that an effect really was caused by a cause. All you really see are things happening in sequence. But you, don't, you infer the connection between them, he says. Destroys all cause and effect. He says through inductive reasoning, through empiricism you end up with no knowledge whatsoever. And then he turns around when it comes to the Bible and says, miracles? Well, we live in a universe, we live in a world where there is uniform testimony against the miraculous because of natural cause and effect. Well, well which is it? You, you, you want to be so rational that you end up in absolute skepticism over here, but as soon as it's the Bible... We leave aside our rational principles. We embrace this irrational acceptance of cause and effect, but you've already destroyed it. People know what's true. They suppress the truth of unrighteousness. Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe if they reject the Word of God. Why? Because the problem isn't, first of all, intellectual. The problem is ethical. The problem isn't the head as much as the problem is the heart. People don't want to submit themselves to God. People don't want to submit themselves to the risen Lord and authority over all things. And so it doesn't matter what the intellectual reasons are. And, 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 and when you try to argue against God, you just end up in all sorts of contradictions. You just end up, no matter what position you try to come from, you always end up mired in a, in a worldview which is self-destructive. But people would rather have that than the truth of the Word of God. It says in the book of Isaiah that God destroys the counsel of the wise. He makes the wise foolish. There are a lot of brilliant, brilliant people who are fools because they reject the truth and try to set up a different standard of rationality in its place. So anyway, though, the people will come along, and, and from a non-Christian perspective, this is all fine, right? To say, well, either I accept natural law or I'm a skeptic or whatever it is, your case just doesn't prove to me that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, that's fine on a non-Christian perspective. And so if you're coming alongside of someone saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what our worldview is, let's just look at facts. Let's just look at events. They have every right to interpret your facts and arguments differently than you do. Because there are philosophical levels, there are foundations below all of these events and facts that, that help us to interpret them in particular ways. Another way that this is responded to, which is completely fair, actually, that people will come along and say, well, listen, the universe really is generated by chance, or perhaps you've, how many of you have heard of um, 
the multiverse. You know, the multiverse. There's more than one universe. There, there's multiple universes, there, or universi, I don't know what the word is for that. Uh, there, there's millions, there might be an infinite number. In fact, Lawrence Krauss, in, in his sort of recent book, uh, The Universe from Nothing, right, which if you read it carefully, turns out not to be nothing at all. You, know, you have to have some things to generate this universe from nothing. Uh, you know, he argues that because there's so many different universes possible, uh, that one of his favorite theories is if something can happen somewhere, it will happen somewhere. And so for some people, they'll come along and say, well, you know what, in, in, in most of the universes, someone's not going to come back from the dead, but, you know, this is a strange universe. There's millions or billions or trillions of them. And so anomalies are going to happen. Things that we can't explain are going to happen. Every once in a while, someone comes back from the dead. You know, that's fine. Just You just turn out to live in a weird universe. You know, well, how do you counter that? On the non-Christian principle. On their standard of rationality. Natural laws aren't fixed. Natural laws are our descriptions of events. And so if events turn out to be a little bit different from what we would expect natural law to allow, well, this means we need to change our formulation of natural law. This is one of the the arguments today. Oh, someone comes back from the dead? Doesn't mean that it was a miracle. It just means that we don't have a full understanding of natural law. There, it was, there was an exception. There, it was an anomaly. Normally that's not going to happen, but yeah, it's a strange universe. Every once in a while, that may be. Uh, it, it, people can respond in terms of what's called the problem of induction. This is, more, this is most naturally handled uh, with science, and here's a little plug. Uh, we're going to break for lunch very soon, and you're going to want to come back early. Because uh, uh, Joe is going to speak uh, at one o'clock on um, Christianity and science. You know, how do we support science? You know, what are the what are the foundations necessary for science? And and one of the problems with science that doesn't take God into oh, there's multiple problems with science that doesn't take God into account uh, is what's called the problem of induction. That is, just because we've observed things happen a certain way in the past has absolutely nothing whatsoever logically to do with what will happen in the future. Nothing. Nothing. Now, you might say that that's crazy, uh, and we don't have time to really unpack it now, but the reality is this is a common understanding amongst philosophers of science. that You can't justify scientific deliberation. No matter what happened in the past, who are we to say what will be in the future? Well, if the universe has just come out of nothing, and if with David Hume we can't really know cause and effect relationships, who are we to say what will or will not be? Well, we're no one to say that. You know, we can't know cause and effect. We don't know what the past really was about. You know, we don't know then what's going to be in the future. In fact, it's entirely possible that a billion years from now, 50% of the population will be raised from the dead. You know, we just have, we're working from a really small sample size in this little corner of the multiverse. How do we know if dead people really stay dead? Maybe the future will be different. And again, on non-Christian principles, you, you can't challenge it at that level. What you need to do is you need to demonstrate that on non-Christian principles, knowledge of anything doesn't make any sense. In fact, one of the glories of the Christian worldview is the Christian worldview shows us how it is that science and morality and knowledge, ethics, history, how it all makes sense. In fact, one of the amazing things about Scripture is Scripture shows us how not just that Jesus came back to life from the dead, but it also shows us, you know, the significance of that event. Because the universe isn't just a universe run by chance. This is essential to understand. You know, the universe isn't just sort of uh, the unfolding of, of random forces or abstract forces or reified forces or, or laws which just happen to be there. Because if that's all the universe is, then you have no reason whatsoever to trust the deliberations of your mind. If your mind is just a product of random forces or, or unintelligent, non-sentient laws in operation, why should you possibly believe anything that you think is true? 
Well, why should you possibly think the cause and effect relationships have tainted? Why should you possibly think the future must be like the past? It doesn't make any sense. The Bible comes along, though, and says, no, this universe, it is ordered. There is regularity because there's intelligence behind it. There's an infinite mind at back of this universe. There's an infinite intelligence who is also om- omnipotent so that the universe doesn't escape his power or hand. He is the one who is in full control of everything that happens. And this is essential to hear and to understand. One of the reasons that today people are skeptical about history and knowledge of the past is that events, things that occur, require interpretation. So we see an event, but then how do we understand it? We are the ones who attach significant meaning, value, purpose to events, right? Now, in a universe where things are just unfolding by random chance and happenstance, and where I'm just a finite little being, when I come to try to assign meaning to the events of time and space, who am I? You know, who do I think I am to be able to say, this is what happened and this is what it means? Well, I'm nobody. Uh, there's no reason for me to think that my interpretation of history or historical events is authoritative in, ev- in any way. In fact, there's every reason for me to think that my opinion is nothing but an opinion, which doesn't matter at all. If the event comes first, and then the interpretation comes afterwards, we never have an authoritative interpretation or understanding of history at all. But that's not what the Bible teaches history is, is it? The Bible teaches that the mind of God knows and exhaustively comprehends every event in time and space before it occurs. The Bible teaches God declares the end from the beginning. The Bible teaches that before the event happens in time and space, it's already interpreted perfectly in the omniscient mind of God. And so it is because history contains the unfolding purposes of God that we can know for sure that history actually has meaning. History actually has purpose. And God has calibrated our minds to see and understand the significance of events as He reveals them to us. That is, we are never in Scripture called to come along to, the re- to an empty tomb and say, here's some historical data, the tomb's empty. Here's some historical data, the disciples were appeared to by Jesus. You figure out what that means. The Bible comes and says, Jesus was raised from the dead. You repent. You believe. You order your whole life on this. Because it's not up to you to determine what that event means. God's going to tell you what that event means. God is going to tell you what you're going to do with this event. It's not merely historical data. It is part of the unfolding, wise, and sovereign plan of Almighty God. We should be very thankful for that. History again, only makes sense not only in terms of knowing the past and the present, but also knowing the future. Because what happens in the future changes our interpretation of the past. I'm not sure if you ever noticed this. Um, Children. Many of you, probably most of you here in this room, if you're not children now, were children at some point. And and, and you can likely remember what this was like. Um, in, In utter injustice... Your parents would make you do something you didn't want to do. And, and, and it, it, it was completely unfair. And it was wrong. And, and, and nothing they said made sense until they finally just said, well, you're going to do that because I said so, and one day you'll understand when you have kids of your own. You said, you know what? Because I'm seven, I already know more than you're ever going to know, and when I'm a parent, I'm not going to do this. Fast forward to the time when you have children. And you are saying to your child, in exactly the same circumstances, this is what you're going to do. And the child is saying, no, it's unjust, it's unfair. And you say, well, you're going to do it because I said so, and one day if you have kids of your own, you'll understand, right? <laughs> well, what's happened? 
the future change your interpretation of the past. You understand on the basis of later experience an event in your past, right? The same thing is true in the Bible. The sacrificial system was really not fully understood until after the atonement of Jesus Christ. Even in the New Testament, in John, Jesus cleanses the temple and says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it again. And we're told, it's like a parenthetical note by John, the disciples didn't know what he meant. It was only after the resurrection they understood the temple to which he was referring was his body. What does that mean? It means that a future event changed their interpretation of Jesus' words at that time. The future changes our interpretation of the present. The future changes our interpretation of the past. So that unless you know what the future holds, you don't know if the past and present ultimately make sense. Unless you know what the future holds, you don't know that your present interpretations of events are true. Unless you know the future, you don't know the past in terms of significance. It's impossible. Because future events change past interpretation. Well, who knows the future? Who knows the future? God. Who knows the past? God. How do we know that there is meaning and intelligibility? How do we know that, the, that time and space make sense and is coherent? Because of God. Well, how do I know it? God has revealed it to me. Where? In His Word. You see, far from making a historical argument to try to prove the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible as the Word of God is absolutely necessary to do historical argument at all. That is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. I don't prove the Bible contains history by my argument. The Bible alone gives me what I need to make sense of time and space history because of God. Not because I'm so clever, because he's revealed it to me. In fact, the amazing thing really isn't that we get this. The amazing thing is that we have such little understanding, given what God has given us in his holy word. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.